0: This is a a milestone for us. We have now begun, as of this morning, Module 2 for BTI. So, uh, some of you may be new here and welcome to BTI. Bible Training Institute, I'll be explaining that more here in a moment and the way that. The modules work and what module two will look like and how you can get started on that for credit if you desire to if you're here sitting in and just wanting to listen and not take it for credit that's totally fine i mean primarily it's for those who are taking it for credit but you are more than welcome to be here as much as you want we want to make sure that you can avail yourself of these resources as well and of course we also record these so they go online on the website and you can find those there and listen to them as well so all right all right, well, let me get us started with a word of prayer. We should start with that, and then we'll get started on some syllabus things, which is not your favorite thing, and uh, time for syllabus shock. Uh, but don't worry, there shouldn't be any shock because there's no due dates. So, anyways, um, yeah, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for your grace, your goodness, and the privilege that we have to worship you. And what an honor it is to come before you as a corporate body to worship you. And we see this as a precedent in scripture. Far more than even an individual worshiping God, we are to do so corporately. And there is a reason for that. And we pray that you would help us to understand that and capture that as we even cover that topic later this morning in BTI. But we pray, Father, as we kick off module two, that you would give us wisdom into your word and clarity among the things that are difficult to understand and ultimately Lord that we would order our lives more in a manner that would give you glory and that we would be changed people as a result that our behavior our thoughts our hearts would reflect the changed life that you have granted to us And so we pray that that would be so for your name's sake, for the watching world, for the watching city of Bakersfield, that we would be an example of Jesus Christ, so that they may also confess his name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we have concluded module one. And this is now, I've lost track. I don't know because Steve did all the ones prior, but this is, I think cycle number four or five that we're on for BTI, going all the way through all the modules. So, if you're new to BTI, and uh, I may need to start kind of just from the ground up. Most of you know this information, but we operate on a seven-module format. Uh, Technically, there are Technically, there are seven modules, but there are six modules that really are the bread and butter of the program. And the seventh module is kind of like a bonus module. You still need it to graduate, so it's not really a bonus. You have to have it. But it is uh, a module that covers the hermeneutics of studying scripture, understanding good Bible interpretation. So um, that's what Module 7 is about. But primarily, Modules 1 through 6 are walking systematically through... Every book of the Bible. So we cover every single book uh, as best as we can. (laughs) Not like we can talk about every detail of every book, but we cover every single book in a survey format. And then we also cover every major uh, theological um, concept or systematic theology uh, So that would be the Christ, you know, Christology, bibliology uh, Pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit Ecclesiology, the study of the church Eschatology, the study of end times We cover all of those And so you're basically getting the equivalent of Four seminary classes Is what I would argue Is what it is Over a two to three year period So you're basically doing one class uh, every half year. That's kind of what it is um, it, from an academic point of view. And you're doing close to the equivalent of the work that they do. Not quite to the same degree, but it's basically there. So someday it would be really cool to be able to actually get you some credit in school for these. And we'd like to do that at some point where you could actually like transfer in credit from what you did in BTI to a school. Because well, you're basically doing the work already, right? So, um, but we, there's some things we'd have to change about that. One is that you would have, we'd have to vet the fact that you're not plagiarizing, because right now you're allowed to plagiarize. It's totally fine. We don't care. Like, you can copy-paste whatever you want from any book, and we don't care. As long as you're uh, you know before the Lord, you're understanding the content, and you're putting it down, right? You're not here because, well, I'm trying to get the grade, and I'm trying to get a career or something out of this, right? You want to be here, and so we don't need to really vouch for for the fact whether you're plagiarizing or not. That's not the, a big deal to us. We know you're seeking to, to do this because you want to learn. And so um, so that's good. But we've already covered in module one Genesis through Deuteronomy and we also did the book of Job. Remember we've changed it a little bit this time because we're going through this in a uh, what we call it... Whoa, that was interesting. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. It's probably the wind. I don't know. It's crazy out there. Um, so we have... We're going through this in a compositional order. Not in a, an order of what your Bible is. But we're doing it in a compositional order. And I appreciate you humoring me to go through it this way. But I hope and trust that you'll be able to appreciate how the Bible came to be. It came to, to us in a certain order. And that helps us to understand, um, well... the the development of theology over time. We see how the Bible develops, and theology develops, and you don't uh, assume theology into people's minds at certain times when they didn't really understand that fully. You actually see it in order. Uh, also, then you also get an appreciation for who quotes who because the Bible authors actually quote one another, don't they? Right. And then you and you want to you want to know like, well, who quoted who in this? Was it this guy quoting this guy? Right. Was was it uh, Obadiah quoting Joel or was Joel quoting Obadiah? That's super helpful when you do it in an, in a certain order. So. We'll get to that down the road. and It'll become more applicable. Uh, And Module 2 is going to be uh, where we start to see some divergence from our Bible. It's kind of been mostly in order. We started with Job. That was a little bit odd. But then we did Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. And that was just in a consecutive order because that's how they were given to us and written written in that order. But we will now see a little bit more of a divergence here in Module 2. And um, it won't be quite in the order that you're used to. I have the Module 2 syllabus up here. We're going to cover this for a few minutes. It says in my notes to do this for f- a five-minute orientation. I think I've already exhausted that and then some. So, um, But we'll just try to do this really quick. I think this is important to make sure that we get this right so then we can move on and, and cover other things. And um, hopefully we'll even get through our topic today. It's not super long. Uh, the textbooks that we typically use and I'm sorry if the print is a little bit small up there, uh, the PowerPoints have a bigger print so it will be better than this. Uh, But I did email out if you're part of the email list for BTI, you should have the syllabus for module 2. I think I sent that out this week. Uh, And if you need that, you can always email me. I can get this to you as well. The books that you'll want to have for this module are Biblical Doctrine. That's the big white book, yes? The big giant one. Okay? It's heavy. So John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, uh, they uh, um, compiled that one together. And then we have Disciplines of a Godly Man. If you're a man, you want that one. If you're a woman, you want the Disciplines of a Godly Woman book. You don't have to get both of them. Just get the one that relates to you. And you'll be covering those in the applied theology section that we have in these modules. Um, this is recommended but not required. The Bible Knowledge Commentary by John Wolvard. And uh, Hi, Zoom. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Um, and also by roy zuck and uh these guys are just uh excellent theologians and sorry that um, i'm using this new view here that does this read mode which is really nice but it's very finicky Um, but that's something that steve uh has put in here as a recommendation i and i would highly recommend it too i think that that's going to be a phenomenal resource if you want to use it you don't have to use it for these but uh just for your own edification that's there uh Uh, Zoom keeps wanting to come up here. It's funny. Okay. Assignments. We have there's reading and there's writing. Okay, that's about the way that the assignments go. There are a couple of uh, modules where there will be some activity things, but generally speaking, that's that's the exception, not the norm. In this case, you have reading, and you can submit those, and you can see that there's a hyperlink here. There's a link online that you just go there, and that's just the best way to submit these. Uh, is It's just on your honor who you just said, hey, I've, I've read this chapter or this section that I was required to read, and you can just submit that there whenever you are... Um, whenever you've read it and you want to submit it at that point. You, you don't have to submit them right after you read them. Obviously, you could wait a little bit, and then you can submit a bunch of them all at the same time, whatever you prefer to do there. Um, and that just notifies me, and then I put that in the system so that it marks and checks off those assignments for you. Uh, the books that we'll be covering in terms of the Bible books is we'll start to go in order again. We'll, we'll start with Joshua, and we'll do Judges and do Ruth because that's the order of the way that we would understand that they came to us. And then we'll do the Psalms. Why? Well, the Psalms are spread out everywhere. So this one's really hard. We have to keep it its own unit because it's its own book. But they literally span from the time of Moses to the time of the exile. So, like, where do you pick? So I decided to pick where the majority of the Psalms land, which is King David, right? He wrote most of the Psalms. So we're going to be doing the Psalms and covering that. But obviously, you'll get sprinkled in other Psalms throughout the history of Israel. And then we'll do First and Second Samuel. So there's a little bit of divergence here. We're starting to see more divergence here in terms of the order that we're typically accustomed to seeing. You also read from different sections in biblical doctrine, which is explained down a little bit further uh, in the um, the assignment by assignment list, and then you'll have readings and chapters from Disciplines of a Godly Man or Disciplines of a Godly Woman. Uh, one note I do make in here is just make sure to, to as you're reading the Disciplines books, uh, to start taking notes if you haven't already, because this will prepare you for Module 3 when there's a little bit of a summary. It's not a huge paper, but it just will save you time from having to go back, oh, I didn't realize that paper was there. And I would, if I had known that from Module 1, I would have started keeping track of this. Uh, I think I know the issue to this. Hold on a second. This thing keeps popping up and it has to do with the fact that the it's trying to connect to the internet let me see here and i'll bet it wants me to verify yeah this is it okay so connect there we go sorry technical details but um that's you know it's bti so that's okay all right let's Let's do that. All right, and then we'll go back to this. Okay. So that's that's what you'll do for the disciplines books. You just want to keep track of these things in like a, a bullet um, format, a bullet point format. Um, and that will just serve you in the end. Then you'll basically have the notes ready and you can kind of uh, change it around if you want before you submit that assignment in module three. so that's that's down the road. In terms of writing for this module specifically Uh, I have the specifications on how you you would want to format your papers so try to follow that as best as you can Uh, don't worry I don't grade you like on an ABC scale so (laughs) for those of you who are like oh I don't want to get a C or a D or anything I don't do that I just check off the fact that you did it I sometimes will make recommendations maybe do this next time or something like that but in general um, everyone who submits these does a great job and uh, it's great Uh, What you usually cover, uh, in terms of writing, one of the assignments that you'll be doing for every book, obviously, is do a Bible book review. And in the Bible book review, we cover this in in these lectures, so you can literally copy from the lectures if you want. You can go backwards in time to Steve's lectures as well. You can use those. Uh, We cover the who, the when, the where, the why, and the how of each book. So that would be the author and the audience, and when was the book written, and when did it take place, where, the setting of the book, and kind of the location of the book's writing and the location of the events of the book. Uh, but what's really important is the why. Why is this book written? And how was it communicated to us? Sometimes there's some key themes, key terminology. There's an outline there as well that you would want to probably put in there. Uh, and then, of course, optional. You can add anything you want in these and just things that you learned from this book as well in your own study and you can, and can do that or things you learned from the lecture that aren't necessarily germane to those those uh, diagnostic questions. And then you have a couple papers here, uh, theology papers specifically. You have in this module a Christology paper, so a study of the Messiah, a study of Jesus Christ himself and who he is, uh, a three- to five-page paper, uh, roughly speaking, and then a pneumatology paper, the study of the Holy Spirit, and we'll be covering that later on in this module. And then for every module at the end, you write a two-page quick paper on just what you've learned and what what you enjoyed about this module and uh, that's, that's basically the paper writing for this module here. This is the schedule and to be clear, though these are the topics on the left in the gray that we'll be covering and, and basically the order of the way that we'll be covering them, there might be a switch around of some order and we did that in module one a little bit, but generally speaking we follow this order. <coughs> you don't have to get the assignments done by the time that it says in this uh, schedule. This is just a suggested schedule. This is a recommended way to approach it. I think you'll probably get the most out of BTI if you try to follow this schedule, but I also realize that um, if you 're going quickly through it and too quickly through it, you might not get as much out of it as you would want so the the flexibility of BTI is that you can turn in assignments whenever you want, okay, so you can do it whenever and I, I emphasize it over and over again because sometimes people go oh no like i didn 't submit it on time it 's like there is no time like there 's literally no time here. Uh, you can submit it whenever you want, so uh, that is Totally fine with me. In fact, I mean, it's like you could be literally three years later and you finally got that paper done for module two. You know, it's like, great, that's wonderful. I'll check it off, and then that's the last requirement you need to graduate. I don't know, whatever. So um, that's fine with me. No problem. I want you to feel as free to. Learn and enjoy this and not feel like it's I have to get through, it's a drudgery, that kind of a thing. Uh, so you'll just see that listed here and if you have any questions about this suggested schedule, but this gives you at least a list of all of the assignments broken down into pieces so you can do them in the, in, in discrete units and it feels like you 're actually getting making progress if you just saw all in one clump, it would just be like overwhelming, so this kind of does it in little pieces, which is really nice at the end and i 've done this a little bit <clears throat> at the end of these modules I sometimes will add in um, a random uh, lecture of something that i 've just chosen that I think it might be an important theological topic and so I do have this down here at the bottom of at the end of module two. Uh, Corporate Solidarity 1, the seed theme. Um, We might cover that. I might change it. So I don't know. So just be wary of that. But uh, I do that for some of these modules here. The idea is is we've restructured these modules so that the modules are more... uh, like equal workload. It used to be very different. Like module three was really small and module one was huge and we've tried to level them out as best as possible. At the same time, it's hard to really fully level them out and kind of make it seem like distinct units that actually have a good breaking point, that kind of thing. But generally speaking, they're mostly level. Module two, if, if we could say that there is like um, greater size modules and lesser size modules, module two is probably slightly... Um, smaller than some of the other modules, just slightly though. It's not much different. So, um, all right. So that's basically the syllabus for module two. Are there any questions that you may have about it? Yeah. Yeah, Peter. So, when we submit the paper, is it got to be typed or just it Preferably top typed if you can. Yes, that would be good. Yeah, it would. Yeah. It. Yeah. Handwriting might be hard to read. Yeah, I think it would be better that way if you could. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Good. Other questions? Yeah, Jimmy? We can also email the paper. Yes, thank you. Yes. So paper is the way that it, they work. You can print them and then put them on the table out here every Sunday. I'll just pick them up, and then I grade them and bring them back, um, and then you can pick them up the next week. Or you can just email them to me. And uh, And that's actually been starting to become a more common thing for people. It saves paper um it saves printing fiascos which always happen right you know how that works printers are the worst design technology on the planet right and so sometimes you're like my computer can't even find my printer you're like i can find my printer but my computer can't you know it's like it's right here so um that's yeah so feel free to uh email them to me and i just it, uh, the thing is is that if you email them, please send them in a PDF or in a Word document. One of the two. Okay, uh, Every uh, Word application platform should be able to at least convert it into a PDF. So that should work. And then I, I make little comments, and then I save them, and they should be viewable to you so that when I submit them back to you, you can see all the comments in there and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, good. Other questions?
1: Yeah. you have a Grace
0: email? What's your email? Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, it's in the syllabus here, but it is J-A-Y-S at gbcob.org. G-B-C-O-B being the Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield.org. Yep, so J-A-Y-S at gbcob.org. Is that right? G-B-C-O-B, yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to get all the, the acronyms in there. Yeah, good. Anything else? Good. All right, great. Well, hopefully it's pretty self-explanatory. And we'll go ahead and get into our discussion this morning on a theology of worship. So uh, one thing I forgot to mention in this is that when we cover these, we usually go back and forth. So that it kind of keeps things at least interesting for you. And you don't get stuck like, okay, we're going to do a whole segment. The first half is going to be all just Bible. And the second half is all just theology. Now, we decided to go ahead and go back and forth. So that it's basically every other week, it's a theology section. And then we'll do a, a Bible section or, or a Bible book. And uh, the start here of Module 2, we're doing a theology section on specifically worship. And um, I was falling into the trap as I was studying for this. Like, well, this is a great section for Darren to do for us, right? Because it's worship, right? And he, like, leads our, you know, music ministry and everything. And I was falling into the trap because that is not a good definition of what worship is. It's not comprehensive. It's our modern way of understanding worship. But it's really important to orient our understanding that worship is not just music. It is not just singing. Yes, it involves music. Yes, it involves singing. And actually, that's really essential. But it is far more than that. And as Steve mentions here in the notes, uh, when we're thinking about worship here, uh, this is actually a presentation that is a shorter version of a longer presentation and I don't know where that longer presentation is so sorry about that but uh, this is the short version apparently which is great so I'm going to have to get with him and figure out hey where's the longer version it's probably like a series he did in preaching or something I'm sure it's online somewhere but let's talk about worship a little bit and let's look at some definitions some ways that scholars and um, pastors have described it this is wonderful uh We have here, uh, W. Nichols says, Worship is the supreme and only indispensable activity of the Christian church. It's that activity, in other words, that it must happen, and you can't replace it. It can't be replaced with anything. It alone will endure, like the love of God which it expresses into heaven, when all other activities of the church will have passed away wow that 's an interesting quote isn 't it? The claim here is that this is the and, and i don 't know if I could say it 's like the only activity that will endure because I think there's, there it goes beyond that, but everything that we do is an act of worship in a sense, so I can see where that that would play a role but it 's true there are a lot of activities today that will not continue into eternity, but worship will, and there might be some other ones, but this is the primary one that 's going to continue all the way through into eternity. And so it is, it is part of the very fabric of who we are as God's people. Another quote from Alan Ross. For worship to be as glorious as it should be, Uh, For it to lift people out of their mundane cares and fill them with adoration and praise. Uh, For it to be the life-changing and life-defining experience that it was designed to be. It must be inspired by a vision so great and so glorious that what we call worship will be transformed from a routine gathering into a transcendent meeting with the living God. That really expresses it very well, doesn't it? And it's, it's something that we understand most, more than anyone on the planet, because we are coming before the very creator of the universe. That inspires the greatest kind of worship that could ever be imagined. But you do see even um, things that are similar to this in the unbelieving world. And you see this where they go to like a sports event. And it's literally a worship arena. Yes? Mm -hmm. And, And they take it so seriously. And they take their traditions so seriously that... It gets transformed from a routine, I guess I'm just here, right? To like this transcendent thing that goes beyond just the things that they're doing. Yes? There's this kind of like enshrinement in everyone's mind about the event that's taking place. Well, this is exactly how man was designed to be. And this is why we see the unbelieving world worshiping but worshiping the wrong things. And this is what we are, we are called to worship, the one true and living God. There is no more important activity to individuals of the body of Christ and to the corporate gatherings of the church than that of worship. There's nothing really more important. This is actually why we gather this morning, is for worship. Worship encompasses the Entirety of our lives, including intentional group gatherings that we have, and even just the fact of, like I was just saying, just going to church. That is part of, this is where we're here for worship. Even in well-meaning local church gatherings, however, the worship presented to the Lord is not always based in a biblical theology of worship. And you may come out of churches that are like this, where you recognize the fact that they didn't really understand worship, or they understood it in a very different way than the way that the Bible actually describes it, when you actually look into it. Mostly churches today see worship, like I was just describing, as it's the singing part, it's the music part, but worship is much more than that in Scripture. In fact, There isn't a lot that's actually described as worship. When you actually use the term worship in Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word worship is not usually tied to just singing or music, really. It's actually mostly tied to other things, which is really interesting. Because worship is the central activity and central concern of the church, it is worth the effort to try to worship in an informed manner, Enlightened by the worship that is seen in Scripture. And so we need to get some definitions and understand worship a little bit better. So let's look at this a little bit. So this is from John MacArthur's book, Worship, The Ultimate, the Ultimate Priority. He says, I should put quotes around this because I think this is actually a quote. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that God is. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that God is. That's a very succinct and very helpful statement on worship. It is all of us and in, in all that we were created to be truly reacting to all that God is and all that He has done. And we have also Alan Ross again saying here, Worship is a response to the revelation of the holy, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, God of glory. Worship is a response. It is truly a response. It's not just something that we do, you know, from our own selves, just because that's it's like an end to itself. Like, it is a reaction to who God is and what he's done. True worship is the, and this is actually another quote uh, from... Uh, Alan Ross as well. I don't have it on the screen here, but you can just listen to it. True worship is the celebration of being in covenant fellowship with the sovereign and Holy triune God by means of the reverent adoration and spontaneous praise of God's nature and God's works, the expressed commitment of trust and obedience to the covenant responsibilities and the memorial enactment of Entering into covenant through ritual acts. And for us that could be like even like the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then he continues, all with the confident anticipation of the fulfillment of covenant promises in glory. And this is coming from Ross's book, Recalling the Hope of Glory. Recalling the Hope of Glory. Okay, so this is giving you just an idea of really what worship is, at least biblically understood, biblically defined. Now, worship, and this is, this is what a lot of these quotes were bringing out. Worship is a response to revelation. Worship is a response to revelation. It, God reveals something or does something it, or communicates something about himself. And that causes us to worship. So that means, in, and this wasn't really part of the notes, but this is interesting. Worship is informed. It requires us. It, sorry, it requires us to be informed. You have to have knowledge to worship. That's interesting, isn't it? And one of the ways that God reveals Himself is He, or one of the facets that He reveals about Himself, is His holiness. And we see this in Isaiah chapter six. We see that the the seraphim were calling out one to another. Uh, holy, holy, holy. And that really, truly influences how Isaiah responds. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, on His throne. Revelation 4 mirrors this as well. (laughs) Why? Because, I would argue, it's the same vision from a different angle. And John sees a similar situation here of the four living creatures exclaiming the holiness of God. That terminology ties these together and shows that this is the same event. By the way, both of those events revelation oh, That's something's shaking. That's cool. Okay. Anyways I don't know what's going on. Oh, Oh, that's hilarious. Cool. Well, hopefully it's not going to be unreadable for you, but there you go. Um, but both of these events, they are referring to the future kingdom. And you have to understand this. Obviously, we would think that with Revelation. But, well, some in some ways, we kind of think about Revelation as like, well, that's not the future. That's currently going on right now. And in theory, I guess you could say that. But actually, there's a great, great case. It's like a home run. I mean, it just... You just need to pick up uh, Dr. Chow's book, I Saw the Lord. And, well, it's a very complicated book. He's, he's It's a very technical book. But, if you want to pick that up, feel free. This is, when you're talking about Isaiah 6 here, this is interesting, because he says, um, the whole earth is full of his glory. Is the whole earth full of the glory of God right now? No. This is a future look. And it's tied in with other visions as well in scripture that we see and it is describing what what isaiah is seeing is a future event of jesus christ reigning on the physical throne of the earth in israel in the millennial kingdom just like what pastor steve has been talking about uh, in his millennium series so that gives us a picture of the holiness of god it's that response that that John and Isaiah have is one of worship. We have God revealing his glory. Again, Isaiah 6, that same passage. The whole earth is full of his glory. Psalm 19, we see... The heavens talking about the glory of God, but we can't fully view it or see it. But we can see its outworkings, if that makes sense. We can see its manifestations in what God has created and its design. And it is telling, it says that creation is telling forth of the glory of God. Uh, Exodus 33, Moses calls upon Yahweh God, reveal your glory to me. Show me your glory. And he doesn't know fully what he's asking for. Because then the Lord's like, you will die if I show you my glory. And he's like, show it to me anyways. No, it's okay. Um, But basically, God does come before him. He hides him in the rock. He's not able to view and witness the full glory of God. But, He does communicate His nature, which encapsulates, from a verbal point of view, what His glory is all about. And it is full of loving kindness and truth, something that we see Jesus manifest in His life. Yes? Uh, John 1, 14-18, makes very clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, Or bringing, He embodies should say he's the embodiment of Exodus 33 and 34. Because John says, and we have seen his what? Glory. Full of what? Grace and truth. Well, that's the terminology of loving kindness and truth, yes? So that's, that's what's going on there. We have um, a little survey we want to do here, too, of worship. And we'll kind of do this before Mount Sinai and then from Mount Sinai after. And it, it changes a little bit. Not catastrophically changes, but it, it, it shifts a little bit. And there's more specificity provided uh, after Mount Sinai. But you have Adam and Eve. And from the very beginning, before God reveals himself to Israel on Mount Sinai, Adam and Eve, and this is before the fall, they enjoyed immediate access to God. Immediate, unhindered access to God. That is what we look forward to, yes? We look forward to that. They walked with him and communed with him in the Garden of Eden. Um, I, I can't help but bring this up, but in Romans chapter 5, it says, um, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Yes? So there's this like reconciliation happening. Um, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have retained uh, have attained recon- er, um, this this peace and this grace. And it says, and we have this access to God. It says we have access. That terminology is this access of like you now have a pathway through the veil of the tabernacle or through the temple that you now have access to God. And this is the access that Adam and Eve understood and experienced. They had access to the one true and living God. And what's wonderful is that we have that same access now. It may not be from a visible point of view, but it is from every in every manner from a spiritual point of view. We have full access to the one true and living God, and that's because of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be under the new covenant. You have this full access. So you have this immediate access to God, and after the fall into sin, now immediate access was no longer available. And it would have to be now a mediated access. Someone would have to be a mediator. There would have to be some kind of a go-between that would help you to access God. And this mediation, yes, was done through priests, but it was also done through sacrifices of animals to uh, cover their Their bodies. Uh, This this is actually, I should say, this is specifically related to Adam and Eve. Right after they sinned, God killed an animal and gave them the animal skins, and so you have the first sacrifice ever uh, on the planet that took place at that moment, and it was to cover their bodies and act as a substitute or provide almost like a symbolic substitute for what should have been their immediate death, but was actually the death of an animal instead. So, and through this, Adam and Eve learned the cost of sin. That it costs... Sin requires the taking of a life. And uh, that death comes through the shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood becomes this graphic picture of death. And it's used. that terminology is used all throughout the Old and New Testament to describe sacrifice. And so we see even their son, Abel, offering sacrifices. Uh, Cain did too. But Abel's, ac- Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was accompanied by faith. And Hebrews 11 verse 4 brings this out. And one of the key ways that Abel's sacrifice was different from Cain's is that he went out of his way to please God, which demonstrated that he, was really, he really had a true heart in the matter, and Cain did not. And the reason why we know that is because it talks about in Genesis 4-4 that he brought to Yahweh the firstborn of his cattle. So he bought, brought the best ones, and not only that, he brought the best of the best. He brought their fat portions, which was the the most flavorful part of the meat, right? Uh, maybe you're like, I don't eat the fat portions of meat. Right? I'm trying to keep a, a healthier diet than that. But um, in that day, and, and very common throughout history, this is true. And I always enjoy, like, anytime I get that fat gristle on a steak, I'm like, oh my goodness, that is good stuff. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, so I know like if I was in this era and I was giving up the fat portions like this is a sacrifice, right? Like but in a sense that is showing you are giving the very best of the very best to God. And Abel got it. He he understood that. He went out of his way to please God whereas Cain was just offering because he felt the obligation. It was perfunctory for him. He just, I have to do this kind of thing. Um, And it was very clear who had the right heart in the matter. Noah, after the flood, built an altar. And he sacrificed to God. This is a, uh, a picture of his worship in Genesis chapter 8. Noah's sacrifice was an expression of gratitude and an expression of submission uh, to to God and to his will. But, I mean, if anything, gratitude for the fact that he and his family were saved from the total annihilation of the earth through the flood. Abraham himself, he built altars to Yahweh. He did so at, at the very beginning when he was in the land of Canaan, in Genesis chapter 12. It was, for him, a response to God's revelation to him. I I am your God, and I am going to give you and your people after you, your descendants, this land. And it was really, for him, an expression of gratitude and devotion to God for calling him to be his people. Um, then he has that incidence the incident of the almost sacrifice of Isaac, not the sacrifice of Isaac, because it didn't actually happen. God stopped him. But God waited until the last second when Abraham was not even able to stop himself. As he was thrusting the knife into Isaac's chest, the angel of Yahweh stopped him, showing that he had went full board into the act and actually fully obeyed to the very very limit of what he could even stop. Um, And so... Abraham Abraham obeyed in his heart and demonstrated his willingness to even sacrifice his son Isaac. And this was, again, an act of worship because he was following what God ordered and wanted. And that's really what worship is. It's really adherence to what does God care about. And we're going to follow that. We're going to do that. Um, It's demonstrated, demonstrated that worship really involves a complete relinquishing of one's self. That's what worship is. No matter what my hopes and dreams are, worship is relinquishing those hopes and those dreams, and myself, and submitting to God and what He wants and what He said. And it demonstrated also His faith, right? His belief in God's word, and that the sacrifice that He would be making, um, uh, that 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 the faith—I should say—that the faith that He has require sacrifice the faith that he has actually requires sacrifice okay so that's abraham moses the revelation of god in the burning bush that moses experienced caused him to respond in very humble submission right Uh, And he removes his sandals, God tells him to, and then he worships there before the the burning bush. When Moses demonstrated God's power to Israel in Exodus chapter 4, also they responded in worship. It actually says that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. Okay, And then Passover. We also see this before we get to Sinai. There's a rejoicing of deliverance from bondage. uh, And we understand that Passover is all about redemption. So this is the rejoicing and the celebration and the honor that is due to God because of the redemption that he has accomplished. And the central feature that we see here in Passover is that sacrifice. Yes, so sacrifice, again, keeps reoccurring in worship. It it was the the key feature there in, in the Passover ceremony. And then, of course, we understand that the Passover lamb is a prefiguring of who Jesus Christ ultimately becomes as the great lamb of God. Uh, Christ, our Passover, as 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, he is our Passover lamb. Alright, so that's before Sinai. Now let's talk about worship at Sinai and after Sinai. So we have the tabernacle and the temple that is prescribed for the sons of Israel to build and to construct exactly according to the way that God has intended. And the purpose here is a clear reality of the presence of God with Israel. It is to communicate not only to Israel, but to the watching world that God dwells in their midst. How else can you show that except to build a physical representation of it? Because God is not a visible being. He can become visible, but if He did, we would all die. So you can't do that. So you have this physical representation of God's presence with Israel. And this both reveals God's holiness... And it conceals God's holiness, doesn't it? Right? It kinda acts as a both and it reveals the fact that His holiness exists, it's there, but it also conceals the full extent of it. And it also demonstrates that access to God was controlled and it was mediated. Like you have to enter the temple, or the the, the tabernacle at the beginning and then the temple later on. You have to enter the temple in order to meet with God. Uh, You have to do so with the selected individual that God has intended. You can't just go in there by yourself. Uh, And it has to be done through sacrifices. And if those sacrifices are not offered, well... uh, bye bye mr priest and you know whoever else is affected by that because they will be dying because of the result of that the access was carefully governed by an outer court and i was thinking this morning like oh i don't have time but i would love to some at some point put pictures in here i have pictures of a replica model of the tabernacle that you can go to when you go visit Israel. Uh, again, like we like to say, when you go visit Israel, not if you go visit Israel. But when you go there, uh, they actually you can go actually go out in the middle of the desert and there is a group there that has literally constructed a full replica of the tabernacle. And it's really cool. I have pictures of it. But at some point, it'd be really cool to see because then you can start to tie things. Oh, that's what they meant when they meant like this ties with this and this connects here and this is what this looks like. And um, so... Access was though governed by this outer court. Then there was the holy place, and then there was an inner holy room. So there was a there was like a like a room, so to speak, not really a room. It was like a uh, more like a, a scaffolding uh, tent model kind of a thing. And then you would go into that, and then there was an inner room inside of that as well. Okay, and that access it kind of helps to show that there was a uh, this lack of access that you could have uh, to God, uh, and it was protected. And, of course, we see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this tabernacle and this temple. And we see this in John. John brings this out significantly. John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days they will raise it up. He was actually referring to himself, not just to the physical temple there. Alright, so then that kind of gives us an idea of of the worship of God from Sinai and going forward. And it's really governed, at least in the Old Testament, uh, from this vantage point with this tabernacle and this uh, temple later on. We also understand that worship requires sacrifice. Worship requires sacrifice. And I know we've talked about this a little bit already, but we'll kind of dig into this just a little bit. Uh, quote from Ross here again. Sacrifice is at the center of worship as the basis and expression of it. Worship, or excuse me, sacrifice is at the center of worship. Uh, This is actually from, um, that's from Ross there. And then um, we have here, uh, we'll have a quote here in a second from one of uh, the professors I had at the seminary, actually. Uh, but this is also a thought from him that worship is halted by sin. Worship is halted by sin. Sin prevents worship from truly happening, at least the way that God intends it. You could have false kinds of worship, but it's not what God has intended. Worship, True worship is always sinless. It's always The removal of sin. There cannot be sin in the equation. Otherwise, it's not really worship the way that God has intended. Boy, that's convicting, isn't it? Like, when you come before the Lord and worship, like, if you're getting graded, like, it's like, did you worship today? Well, was there any sin in your life while you were worshiping? Right? Like, that's, you have to address that before the Lord before you can actually truly worship. And we see that even in the, the sacrifices and the way the Old Testament is structured, but we'll see that in a moment. But this is that quote, um, excuse me, I have a quote that I'll read to you uh, connected to this from Dr. Snyder, who was one of my professors and uh, a good family friend of ours as well. Um, He says, Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, presents the pattern that God established in order to facilitate holiness and remove impurity from his treasured people so that they might dwell with him in covenant fellowship. For the people to commune with God, atonement for their sin must be achieved. So atonement was accomplished by means of sacrifices which were when offered from a heart of faith, acts of worship. Did you catch that? Atonement was accomplished by means of sacrifices, and those sacrifices are truly acts of worship if they are accompanied by a heart of genuine faith. So, for people to commune with God, atonement for sin must be achieved. There must be an atonement. Old Testament sacrificial system... uh, was also uh, related to worship specifically. And we see this in different ways. We see that there was uh, a concern for God in terms of purity or holiness. This is something that God really was concerned about, that the person was pure. It was really helping to understand and show that they understood that God is pure. And so that in order to be with Him, they must be pure. The worshiper came as a sinner in need of acceptance by God. That was always assumed, and it's demonstrated in the sacrifices that they would make. God is the one who grants the effectiveness of that sacrifice. The offering consisted of that which was costly to the worshiper, right? Fat portions, firstborns, right? Taking from your own food source, those kinds of things. This is going to be a costly thing for them. And then, of course, the worship came to commune with God in covenant fellowship with Him. Uh, I think I actually should say the worshiper came to commune with God in covenant fellowship with Him. So there is a covenant relationship that that the person is seeking to live out before God because of what God has even accomplished in that covenant. Alright, we'll, we'll finish up here in the last five minutes and just uh, see how much we can get through here. Old Testament sacrifices and the New Testament fulfillment. So there are... Basically five different sacrifices there in at the beginning of Leviticus that are described as here's what you do with each of these sacrifices. And we've talked about this already with when we went through Leviticus, so I won't belabor this too much. But you have the purification offering, basically it's the sin offering. And the sin offering was basically the, the first offering that people would need to bring because they would need to purify themselves from their sin before they could even offer any other kind of offering. So sin offering was often the first one that they would have to uh, bring before the Lord and it was to, to cover their sins and uh, to remove the impurity. And uh, The offering had to be a- accompanied by this confession of sin. Uh, we see this even in David's prayer in Psalm 32 that he needed to confess his sin uh, in order to uh, experience the forgiveness of God and we even see this reflected in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for our sake. And so we see this even cross over into the New Testament that there must be a a sacrifice, and Jesus Christ is that sacrifice for sins, and that's how it purifies us. There was also the reparation offering, which we would also call the guilt offering, where if there was something between you know, two Israelites, and there was a loss of goods, or a loss of resources, because of what someone sinned in doing, they would need to repay those things. And if you didn't repay those, then it was a demonstration that you really didn't have a heart to really seek out full forgiveness and restitution for that sin. And that's also reflected in Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 and 24. We saw that in Steve's preaching recently about um, your brother and going to court and making sure that you are rectifying the whole situation. Uh, burnt offerings. Whole, these are whole burnt offerings. You burn the entire animal because it's a demonstration of the fact that you are wholly dedicated to God. There is no part of the animal that you get to keep for yourself. theres You know—you don't get any part of that stake, so to speak. right? You have to burn the entire animal because it is a demonstration of Whole, whole dedication to God. And actually, you can see this pictured very nicely in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, where we are to offer our bodies as a living, holy sacrifice. More on that in the future, but that is a very corporate call for the whole body to do that together as one. There's also the Thanksgiving offering. As worship, an expression of thanksgiving for what God has done in response to His forgiveness of us, His love for us. Uh, it would often consist of fine flour and o- olive oil, incense, baked bread. You would bring basically crops and, and grain and, and so forth that you would bring before the Lord. Uh, and it was thanking him for all that he's given to you. It's basically an expression like, thank you for the food that you've given to us. Thank you for the rains that you give to us. And we, we, our, our expression of thanks goes so far as to give back to you some of that, to demonstrate that this really belongs to you. Then there was the peace offering. And the peace offering was only offered after it was very clear that God and man were... Um, Fully reconciled, at least from a limited point of view in the Old Testament and then the New Testament from a complete point of view. Uh, The giving of physical possessions uh, as worship, uh, this would happen quite often in the Old Testament, and we see this in in several passages there. But they would give 10% of all that they owned as just a tithe, just in general, but then they would give another 10% whenever they would come for the feasts, the three annual feasts at Jerusalem. And then In the third and then the sixth year of every seven-year cycle, they would give a tithe for a poor tax. Boy, they're giving a lot of money, aren't they? This is kind of interesting. Uh, And then they would also have animal sacrifices three times per year, uh, and then there would be major sins to deal with. uh, And whenever that would happen, it meant that you would have to offer more animals for those. Uh, There would be times where you could offer your own free will offering at your own um, on-demand desire you know and, and bring a, a vow or a free will offering to the Lord and the whole point of this is that one some simply does not think of going before the Lord empty-handed one does not simply go before the Lord empty-handed that's very important okay. We're basically out of time, and I, I don't want to, uh, we're almost done with this, but I'll go ahead and save this for the next time we cover uh, our next theology section. We'll, we'll finish out this one, and then we'll cover uh, our next theological section here. And then, um, But next week, the the plan is to cover Joshua. We'll do that, and then um, we'll go from there. All right? Sound good? Let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll head over to the main sanctuary. Father, thank you so much. It is good to be learning about what worship really means because that's what we're going to be doing here in a few moments. We pray, Father, that our worship would truly be acceptable for you. Thank you so much that we come on the merits of Christ and not on our own merits. Thank you, Lord God, that even in our sin, even sometimes when we fail and we worship you in sin, Lord, you are forgiving and you are gracious. And because of that, we pray that we would be thrilled in our hearts with joy to bring you the worship that you deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.